Alrighty, Bismillah ar-Rahman ar-Rahim. Nahmaduhu wa nusalli ala rasulihi al-kareem amma ba'ad. We express our praise and gratitude to Allah Ta'ala. And we seek blessings on the Prophet, peace be upon him. Uh, can someone nod? Just let me know you can hear me. Okay, good. Okay, so continuing through our exploration of causes and manifestations of rejection. We were looking at this first subsection, which goes from IS 75 to 82. And um, hold on, share screen, the white bard. Okay, good. So <laughs> this is just me rewriting the, uh, the, the thing from yesterday. So people, one wrong that people do regarding scripture is that they knowingly change the words of Allah. Let's make this nice and straight. Oh, very good, very good. Okay, so, so they knowingly change the words of, of, of Allah. And then what do we say is the appropriate thing to do is to keep the full text. And, and so one of the ongoing questions I've been raising is how does this apply in terms of our tradition and our community? And we'll go through the whole list and then re, we'll revisit all of these things. And we'll also revisit the, uh, the first point of the ayah. The second is that they hide the truth so it doesn't get used against them. And so what is appropriate behavior is you're embracing the full text, even if it goes against you. And so an example of this would be the preacher who is only preaching happy things because that's what uh, the people in, in their congregation want to hear. Or the preacher is only preaching unhappy things because that's what the people want to hear. And you're embracing the entirety of, of the text. Now, a lot of our discussion yesterday was, okay, are you going to apply the entirety of the text? Not necessarily right away. Um, application will depend upon context. In the same way that I mentioned that when I teach the, um, the when we're going further into this surah and we go to the ayahs on, on the hajj, usually I skip past all of those rules because they're not relevant unless you're going on hajj. You don't need to know anything about hajj barely except for a couple of principles like the fact that you have to unless you're going on hajj if you're going on hajj then you need to know um, you know whatever are the appropriate details okay so having said that that brings us into into the third attribute or the third uh, 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 wrong and and that is what we were calling wishful thinking. Hey, where's my, oh, here's. So, um, right. Right here. Okay, women hum ummiyuna. So among them, there are ummis. There are people who are illiterate. So they do not know the kitab. So except for their own wishful thinking. And so they basically ask, act out of suspicion, out of guesswork, out of, out of conjecture and such. And so the example of this would be someone who in our community would be, uh, we talked about this uh, a bit, the person who is claiming, okay, Islam is the religion of the peace. You know, and uh, why? Because that's what they want it to say. That's what they want it to be in the same way that an Islamophobe wants to convince us that Islam is a religion of war, that the Quran is a religion of war. And so, so here would be a person who just, it is whatever they want it to be. And often whatever it, I want it to be is whatever suits my life uh, uh, the most. And so again, how do we how do we make that proper practice? So for this, going back to the screen, what is proper practice then? Proper practice is knowing the text. 
Yeah, that's, that's pretty straightforward. The better I know the text, the better, more likely it is that I'll be embracing the full text. And, and another way to think about these, these, all of these points is that the Quran is presenting to us not only how reality works, but the standards of behavior. The Prophet, peace be upon him, is the standard of behavior. And more than likely, there will be aspects in terms of my outlook and my habits that are going to contradict that. And the problem is not in the standard. The problem is in me. The goal is to help me figure out how to fulfill the standard, how to match up with, with the standard, with all of its complexities. And that includes those passages that in, in contemporary urban society, we may not want to think very much about, whether it's talking about slavery or concubines or war, uh, any of those things. Or when we're talking about salvation and damnation, especially of people who are outside of Islam, who might be in our families or might be among our friends, our colleagues, so forth and so on. The challenge is to embrace the entirety of the text with all of its its different uh, different aspects. <clears throat> okay, and then in fact, um, if it's like I said, it's easier if you can look at your own. Uh, Rather than me <coughs> uh, wasting a lot of time going back and forth, it's a lot easier if you go through your own uh, uh, Mus'haf or, or, or phone or, or screen of the Quran along with this. So, Ayah 84 is now saying, is speaking of. No, sorry. Uh, oh, Ayah 79 is now speaking of those people who literally make things up. It's not even in the text. And then they claim it is from Allah. And, and so there they have a double warning. One is a warning for the lying that is happening. And another is a warning for whatever they're gaining from it. And, and so... So this, again, I want you to think about what would be ways that this can apply to, to our tradition. So obviously the opposite of this good behavior is you do not, do not fabricate text. Okay, that's, that's very, very straightforward. Uh, but again, like I said, we're going to revisit this whole list. A lot of this is going to mention... Uh, uh, Musab, similar to what you're saying, but a lot of this is going to mention, especially in terms of the context of, of the Hadith literature and other practices that, that, that people uh, introduce. And then Ayahs 80 and 81, they say the fire is not going to touch us except for a few days. And then the response to them is, okay, did Allah make this promise to you? Allah Ta'ala is not going to break his promise. Good. And, and so, so how do you move from baseless theology, which is sort of like wishful thinking, which is sort of a mixture or pieces of all four of the above, you essentially ground your theology in text. The more you can do that, the better. Just like with your law, like the prophet, peace be upon him, speaks of a time where he says that there's going to be all kinds of people who are going to be giving fatwas without any, any qualifications to do so. And, and what is a way to prevent a person from being that type of fake mufti is that more and more you ground everything in the text and then by extension and methods that are derived in terms of interpretation of, of the text. Or you just find someone who can answer the questions for you, which is much, much easier. Okay, so this is, in a nutshell, the, the wrong things that, that people do regarding, regarding scripture. And now, if we go through this and, and apply it to hadith instead of Quran, because with Quran, at least in urban society, I think it's, it's hard to do at least one through four. Five, you might be able to make up stuff. 
And if you're charismatic enough, people will believe you. But you can't really change the word. You might be able to change the. You might be able to change what the translation is, like we talked about the changing of the translation of the word chelafa. Uh, uh, you can't really hide the truth, except you know in the short term, um, like if, if you're giving, if you're speaking to a particular person or giving a talk, you can only you can talk about only happy things and such, and sort of pretend the other stuff is not there without technically hiding it. Uh, but with hadith, a lot more of this can absolutely play out. So, for example, knowingly change the, changing the word of Allah. Uh, first and foremost, uh, in what way, if at all, do we regard the hadith as the word of Allah? So first let's position the hadith. Thoughts. Oh, by the way, uh, because uh, I received a lot of com uh, complaints yesterday of regarding, you know, the all kinds of bizarre ways our conversations went. Uh, I've turned off people's microphones, and so I'll turn them back on um, in the latter part. So here, I'm asking you to type or to raise your hand, and then I can unmute you. So one exactly is is Hadith Qudsi, and so in terms of the authentication of the text. Uh, for what is, first and foremost, what is Hadith Qudsi? The Prophet, peace be upon him, is saying that Allah says such and such. Yeah. So different category of revelation than the Quran. Just to repeat something that we spoke about way back in course number one. We spoke about two types of wahi. So we have Allah Ta'ala revealing. Yeah, Saadiya, that's exactly correct. So we spoke of the uh, so Allah revealing to the Prophet peace be upon him. Think of that arrow uh, essentially as Jibril alayhi salam, and there's recited and non-recited revelation. Okay. Revelation, recited revelation would be the Quran. Non-recited revelation. I don't remember how we put it back then. Is is the Sunnah, and it overlaps with the Hadith, which overlaps with the implemented or lived Quran. So, so if the Quran is saying do X, Y, Z, and the Prophet is doing X, Y, Z, we would find that in the Hadith literature. The sunnah would overlap with the hadith literature. Okay, so so relate to what what uh, Sadia is saying is that we're also suggesting that the prophet peace be upon him is not speaking out of his own self promotion. And so, is everything he's saying coming from Allah? Not necessarily, because the companions even asked him this. Okay, this thing that you're you're telling us to do is this revelation, or is this your own? Is this your own? Uh, what's the word? Uh, you know, conjecture or, or or speculation. So should, you're saying we should put the wells here before it became the battle of other. We're saying it should be up there, and so he says, no, this is my own. This is my own reflection. Okay, is it contradicting Allah Taala? No, not necessarily. I mean, there's also the case where uh, people ask him for advice about irrigation. And then he gave him advice and all the plants died. And then he says, okay, there's expertise that you have, there's expertise that I have. I'm paraphrasing, of course. Yeah. Uh, would the signs of God in nature be considered non-recited revelation? Uh, I would include them, but not in this category, meaning those are ways in which Allah is speaking to us. Here uh, in, the, in the diagram I have, this is how Allah is speaking to the prophet, peace be upon him. And so, 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 uh, yes, Doctor Islamic Society Mashiana. Uh, uh, in terms of the ways Allah speaks with us, we could we would make a whole different diagram, uh, which would include, you know, the sign, the ayat, uh, all around us and within us and such. Okay, which in a way is also coming from Quran. Okay, so but the point I'm making is that it can be argued that the content of the hadith is indirect word of Allah. Yeah. Meaning more direct is Allah to the Prophet to us as Quran, meaning word for word. 
versus Allah to the, which is basically Allah to the Prophet to the companions to us, right? That's how we're getting the Quran. And so Allah to the Prophet, peace be upon him, including Jibreel, السلام, uh, to the companions, uh, but then confirmed that the Prophet said it. Or not confirmed, but he may have said it. Thus, it makes it more and more indirect. Anyway, I hope I didn't confuse you. But the point I'm making here is that a lot of the sectarian approaches to Islam don't have as much issue with the Quran as much as they do with the Hadith literature, which would, which could include basically just hiding or getting rid of quite a bit of it because it might negate your sectarian theology. Um, or claiming things that the prophet, peace be upon him, did not say. And then by extension, without even knowing anything about it, but, you know, but giving us stories of the prophet, peace be upon him. So one example I gave was that nobody seems to be able to find the story of the prophet, peace be upon him, and the woman who used to throw garbage on him. I still think it's true because of how widespread it is, but I have no evidence to beyond my own speculation and my, my simplistic argument that it's so widespread, there's probably some truth to it. But that's a story we can picture with the prophet, peace be upon him. It doesn't change him, it actually just enhances what we already think about him. Okay. Uh, can you think of any examples of knowingly changing the text of the Hadith? And feel free to uh, to raise your hand and I can unmute you. you know, or typing. Any thoughts? Guesses? Here, it's sort of, oh, Iqbal, uh, let me unmute you. Oh, well, it's not letting me. Oh, snap, I might have to relinquish some of this, this minimal amount of power that I have. Okay, yeah, go for it, Yes. Yeah, so, so regarding the Hadith, there's a, a fabrication regarding the playing the chess game, for example. Okay. Uh, that is mean. It's been associated that Prophet said of uh, playing the chess game, for example, uh, he he kind of forbade it. But I mean, this is a clear fabrication, it sounds like, because there wasn't any chess or anything related to those kind of activities back in that time. Mm. So this is another you know way of uh, fabricating it, mm -hmm. changing the text. Possibly, yeah, I'm not familiar with that story, but uh, that could be an example. Uh, where we do find what seems to be the case of knowingly changing the text is, is on political hadith. And so, so also, so in terms of the question of authentication and application of hadith, there is uh, the common notion that, uh, uh, what's the word, that, um, uh, if it's Hadith Qudsi, and like we were discussing yesterday, if it sounds like it's reasonable and true and beneficial, leave it. We're not going to focus on authenticating it. If it's a Hadith related to politics, often there was caution against even engaging with it because they're being used, they can be used to justify uh, uh, tyranny. Okay. And related to political Hadith are Hadith of end times. There's not as much focus on authenticating hadith of end times. It's there, but, but uh, not as much. But what is the overall point that I'm making? Is that in our community at the urban level, and by the urban level, I'm speaking of a certain level of literacy and a certain uh, 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 amount of interaction with people, it's hard to do these things with the Quran. But it is still not as hard to do these things with with the um with the hadith uh, even hiding the truth this you find interesting so uh, i have a student who some of you may have taken courses with him uh now maybe not anyone in this group 
uh, Omer, Omer Hasib, who's in Chicago, who, who studied in, in Morocco. And, and then he also did a little bit of brief study in Medina, not at Medina University, but with some teachers individually. And they told him to go to the store, the bookstore, and get a set of Bukhari, right? Which imagine teachers could go get this and then come back. And then Omer has his own internal resistance. Like, I want to spend all this money on a book for one lesson. Anyway, so he does it and he gets it. And the teacher is showing him how in the teacher's copy of Bukhari versus the one that's published by Darus Salam, Darus Salam has, has removed a whole bunch of hadith. And one, for example, and uh, actually he was mentioning this to me in a different context. One, for example, is when the Prophet, peace be upon him, is giving his khutbah at Hajj. Uh, we're familiar with the ending of the hadith where he says, follow two things and you'll never go astray. What are those two things? Quran and Sunnah. Okay, so we commonly teach us Quran and Sunnah. But in other narrations, what does the Prophet, peace be upon him, say? Well, so he actually says, follow the kitab and my Sunnah. Uh, in other narrations, he says, follow the kitab and my family. Okay. Now imagine the sectarian consequences of that. Okay. But that is authentic, as authentic as follow the kitab and my sunnah. And for whatever reason, you know, in this event that has thousands of people, we have narrations that say, follow the kitab and my sunnah, and follow the kitab and my family and so so yeah and so so that would be an example of something like that that would be uh in the category of hiding the truth literally publishing the text and removing narrations that that are you know from the perspective of the publisher problematic so how do the Sunnis follow, explain the follow my family bit? Uh, we aren't, we're not going to use the word bit because this is not, not stand-up comedy. But, uh, but the point is basically that um, that is still consistent with Sunni thought. You know? uh, the difference would be in terms of how does that get further articulated? Is it by these specific imams or such? Because let's take it from another perspective. Uh, there's a teaching where the Prophet, peace be upon him, is coming back from the same hajj and then he is, and then about a week later, they stop, you know, to, to, to rest on their travels because it takes, you know, about a month or so to, to, to get home. But this is a large group, so it probably takes longer. And so then he is at this, this pond, this small lake, and he is announcing, okay, that Ali is my successor. This is in Bukhari. Dun, dun, dun. Okay. How do we make sense of that? And so the point is that some say, yeah, the prophet absolutely said it. Okay. And it is, and Ali does become his successor. But the prophet also, you know, when he was sick, he had Abu Bakr take over. And the prophet also, peace upon him, said that if there's going to be another prophet, it's going to be Omar, meaning he's given multiple different uh, levels or different depictions of authority to numerous companions. And so, so the point is that you will find even narrations like that being removed from the text. And sometimes even these publishers are sloppy. Uh, they'll give you numbers and they'll even leave out, you know, number 27, blah, blah, blah uh, of, of, of the Hadith and such. So again, what is the point that I'm making is that you know, in sectarian matters or in Hadith matters, then you find a lot of these things happening. Because even if we take, you know, the, the, the six canonical collections, Bukhari, Muslim, Nasa'i, so forth and so on, Nasa'i, uh, so forth and so on, uh, what is also often not uh, put into consideration are the critiques of those collections. So, for example, one of the most prolific writers of the 20th century is Nasiruddin al-Albani, who, who went through his own very detailed process of critiquing authenticity of the narrations. And he's starting with the default that Bukhari is 100% authentic. But even in the general, uh, in the, uh, the, the general um, uh, 
um, uh, history of, of Islam post-Bukhari, there are numerous critiques of Bukhari in terms of authenticity. So the general sentiment is that it is not 100% authentic. It's probably about 98% authentic. And then on top of that, the common approach for Hadith today is to say Bukhari and Muslim are giving you a complete manual. But at that time and subsequent to that time until the modern era, no, it looked exactly like Bukhari is giving you a depiction of his approach to Islam. So Mawatta Imam Malik is sometimes looked at as a legal text or Imam Malik is giving you, here's a set of topics that need to be focused on as opposed to an all-encompassing legal text. And Bukhari is giving a, te uh, a text not from the perspective of law, but from the perspective of theology. He's giving you his own vision of Islam, his own school of thought. Mm -hmm. But then what's happened since then is that we've made Bukhari sort of an all-encompassing manual, which is not how it was written. And there's all other factors to this. This also relates to the access that lay people have to scholarship and such. But again, what is the point that I'm making is that this, this list that we have on the screen, it's hard to do this with the Quran in urban society. Still not as hard to do it with, um, with um, uh, what's the word, with, um, uh, with the Hadith literature. Uh, Sadia to, so, so, so Sami, let me know if I've answered your question. I'm saying it's not a contradiction in terms of somebody thought, yeah. Uh, in terms of, of um, uh, Sadia, your question, I haven't been able to find it. Uh, see if you can find it uh, in there. Cool. Okay, so, so finishing off this subsection, the last two ayahs say what? Okay, whoever earns evil and sin has encompassed him, those are the companions of the fire they will abide therein eternally. So we're also getting a sense, uh, another statement about reality is that uh, basically that you have the action of sin or good deeds. And then on top of that, you have the consequence of sin. Which could be more sins. So, for example, what am I saying? That if I tell you a lie, to sustain my lie, I might have to tell you more lies. And then what can also happen from there is what am I earning from it? Earning doesn't necessarily mean only wealth or salary. Uh, it could also be, you know, the type of esteem that I'm getting. And so I can reach a point where the consequences get so thorough that I am surrounded by my sins. So I lie on my resume. I lie on my taxes. And so I've earned all this wealth and I've bought things from that. And so I can reach the point where I am becoming further and further immersed in my sins. Okay. or the consequences of my sins. And so it becomes like an avalanche. It starts out with this snowball, small snowball, and it's growing and growing and growing. So. But what does Ayah 82 says? It say, وَالَّذِينَ آمَنُوا وَعَمَلُوا الصَّالِحَاتُ أُولَٰئِكَ أَسْحَابُ الْجَنَّةِ So those who believe and do right, they are the companions of paradise. Okay, that part is straightforward. Okay. So likewise... So my action can be good. For some reason, every time I do G at the beginning of a word, I can't write it properly. My action can be good. And then resulting in good. Not as much need to reinforce it. But then we have the earning. So I can, inshallah, be surrounded with good. And I think we gave the example before of how scrupulous and detail-oriented uh, Abu Bakr was on this, where, you know, he, this is after the prophet has passed away, and Abu Bakr had the servant who would go and get, you know, uh, 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 his breakfast and such. And then he would ask him every step, where did you get this from? How did you pay for this? So forth and so on. And just to make sure every step of it. So not just that the food was legitimate, but the process of acquiring the food is legitimate too. Okay. 
And then the one day Abu Bakr didn't ask, the servant says, hey, you didn't ask me today. And, and uh, about how to get the, get the, um, the, your milk. And then the companion says that, yeah, I did, I did this amount of this small bit of deceit. And Abu Bakr got so upset that he started, you know, gagging to, to get rid of all the milk. And he kept doing it until blood was coming forward. So that's how, that's how strict he was in making sure every aspect of his earning and such was, was upright. But what we also have when we have IO 81 and 82 together is IA 81 is summing up what came before. IA 81 is that, all right, if you, if you commit sin, you're surrounding yourself with sin, you're doomed. But with IA 82 coming after it, what are we being told? Okay. Do not give up. If you are in a position where you feel like you are surrounded by your sin, still keep doing good. And keep seeking forgiveness. And then what we're also taught is that if you keep seeking forgiveness, inshallah, Allah Ta'ala will give you a way out from where you weren't expecting. So the point is that if I am, Billah, doing all five of these things, then what to do? I should still be doing good with the intention of seeking a way out. So I should not fall into despair. So when Allah Ta'ala is mentioning at the end, okay, if you do wrong, you go to hell. If you do right, you go to paradise. On, the, on its objective truth, yeah. But also what we take from it is do not despair. Okay, having said that, let's open up the floor to other questions or thoughts about anything at all and you have been unmuted and so feel free to raise any questions anyone and so this is a point in the call where, where someone says hey you still have a house phone nobody has a house phone anymore okay. no questions thoughts about anything uh bosser go for it um Assalamualaikum. So, um, this um, this whole passage is it looks like it's also repeats that you know Allah Subhanahu wa Taala's warning to uh, the people, uh, the children of Israel or Ahl Kitab uh, about concealing what they have. Um, uh, you know, it's, it really looks as if you know Allah Subhanahu Allah's warning has never been uh, more dangerous than that. Uh, and if you, if you like, if somebody doesn't know the background, then you would probably skip it. But, uh, but I guess the uh, they were really uh, being pushed to to uh, to uncover the truth which they were hiding. So. Um, in that sense, uh, I can understand that context. But in today's time, when if somebody says, because I have uh, heard, uh, I think Numan Ali Khan on this, he had his view that um, this also applies to Muslim if we if we don't convey the message of Islam. Uh, do you think that it can also apply to that extent that if we don't convey the message of Islam, or is it that if we purposely hold uh, hold it from other people. So, you... so for that, that type of thing, I'd say we look at the, the practice of the Sahaba and it seems like the vast majority of them were not doing da'wa. Uh, there were some who were absolutely doing da'wa. The uh, most famous example is Abu Bakr. And of the Ashara Mubashara, the 10 people who were promised paradise, I think almost all of them were people that Abu Bakr had called to Islam. And I mean, obviously, there's a couple exceptions like uh, Ali and Uthman and Omar and such. Um, and so, so is it a uh, an individual responsibility to do dawa? Uh, I don't know that it is. Um, it's definitely a collective responsibility, but I think it follows that it would not be an individual responsibility because for some of us, that's just not our aptitude. Uh, you know, uh, dawa itself is. Is it, it requires a particular type of skill and a particular type of personality. 
and I think different people have different roles. And so uh, I think if someone is going so far as to say that someone who is not doing Batwa is hiding the truth, I think that's uh, that person should not be speaking. Any other underlying points in terms of what I'm making there? Uh, Ahant, you had uh, um, you had your hand raised. Yeah, can you hear me? Yeah. Um, I was going to ask is your your last conclusion there with your whiteboard you wrote do not despair mm -hmm. is the mention of those ayahs after the uh, ayahs of all the wrongs regarding the scripture is you know is Allah kind of saying that you know those who don't take the truth you know as a whole will fall into despair because of the deficiencies you know they have in you know like accepting whatever truth they don't want to accept uh, I don't know if I would read it that far, but we are going to see something in, in about 10 or so ayahs that kind of give us a different uh, perspective on why people would potentially fall into despair. So uh, if someone is, is picking and choosing the ayahs that they follow, will they fall into despair? It's possible. Um, uh, um, but... Uh, I'm, I'm hesitant to, to commit to that, at least. I'm going to have to reflect on that some more, inshallah. Inshallah. Thank you. Absolutely, inshallah. Um, who else raised your hand? Sadia? Um, Assalamu alaikum. Wa uh, um, So there have been calls for reformation of Islam. Mm -hmm. And although personally, I, I mean, I don't, I don't think that's, necessary or you know it's basically the reformation of muslims that's required mm -hmm. but what category would you put that in um and these calls have come from you know very famous people for example reza aslan um i heard him talking on a few shows and few places and read and you know so where would you put that in so uh, I wouldn't say it's automatically any of these things. I wouldn't say it's automatically a negative thing. Okay, so, so if we think back to uh, uh, Adnan's course when we were talking about uh, Islamic Renaissance. Uh, so when we speak of reform and revival, so revival would be tajdeed, reform would be islah, so that on their own, um, it would be very, very consistent with that hadith of the prophet, peace be upon him, that you know, someone's going to come along every century and, and revive the, the deen. But what is the essential motivation? What is the purpose? Is that we're saying that the package we have right now uh, of Islam or something in society, it's making it hard for people to get closer to Allah. Okay. And so, 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 so relate to your point that, okay, it's reform of Muslims that's necessary. I think everybody would agree with that. But the argument for reform is that there's something else that's preventing this from happening. Okay. And so the motivation is, is something is preventing growth of faith or the aspirations of growth of faith. Increase in Iman or the desire to increase Iman. So I'll give you an example. Uh, uh, so every year, and I've probably mentioned this in previous courses, I try to sort of keep track of what are the most common questions that I get from undergrads. And in previous years, uh, questions were uh, repeatedly year after year, the most common question was, how do you reconcile free will and predestination? Yeah. And for some people, it's more of an abstract, just exploration. But for other people, they feel like they need an answer because they can't, you know, they don't want to trust the dean yet until they can find an answer to these questions. And sometimes what they're looking for is, okay, just show me that the dean is smarter than me. And then for the last few years, most common questions became something like, uh, why do I even need religion? What does it give me? 
And so what I'm saying is that there's something in social context that's leading young people to ask that question. So they even don't even have an interest to desire to have uh, an increase of, of uh, Iman. And so part of the idea of reform is in like the Orthodox reform is basically to repackage everything in a way that is still authentic, still has integrity, but is relevant to people's lives. And so what is an essential purpose of this course? By intention, I'm basically saying that the way we're being taught Quran is mostly irrelevant to people's lives. And I'm trying to present uh, an understanding of the Quran that's relevant to us in our moment in time and place. This type of course would probably potentially completely irrelevant 20, 50 years ago, 20, 50 years from now. So, meaning it would probably require a, a, a drastic uh, makeover. And, and so even if we look at all the big scholars of our history, the revivalists, like whether they're talking about Ghazali, Rumi, Ibn Taymiyyah, etc., one way we can argue is that literally all they're just, just doing is repackaging everything, you know, for the questions and concerns of their era. Now, there are those people who call for reform who are basically saying, we just got to make Islam like everything else. Yeah. Right. Those are the ones that I was actually referring to. Yeah, yeah. I figured you were. I just wanted to establish that, that a lot a of reform. More negative, a bit more negative side of it. Yeah, and in in essence, what are they often saying? Okay, let's just get rid of all the laws, and make reduce your Islam to an identity. You know, uh, Reza Aslan's book on God is very very interesting. He's talking about this whole evolution of God, but then he ends with the Sufis, and he ends with Wahdat al Wujud, which means he doesn't know everything that you know. He's missed, he's missed basically eight hundred years of Sufi reflection, you know, with a big one uh, like Shahadat al Shahadat Wahdat al Shuhud and, and such. Uh, and so he's more, uh, I, I place him not so much, uh, even though he has scholarly credentials, he often presents himself more as an entertainer than, uh, than an actual, you know, deliberate scholar. His book on Jesus, from my, from my perspective, is really, really good, but I'm not a scholar of the historicity of Jesus, but I was not impressed by his book on God. Good. Uh, the questions... Uh, Basir, sure. I don't know what the relevance is, but yeah, that's fine, inshallah. Uh, any other questions about anything at all? It's, uh, I guess, like some of us were discussing yesterday uh, some parts of Hadood, and we weren't uh, uh, maybe, uh, if we want, uh, this, this article might be really helpful as how Sharia looks at Hadood, so if somebody wants to read it, I found it very interesting. Yeah, sure, if you want, Shola. You know, it's peripheral to what we're talking about, but yeah. Any other questions about anything at all? No other questions, thoughts, comments? What is the meaning of ilmul kalam? Okay, once again, we're, we're, we're sort of off topic, but in a nutshell, the field of kalam Okay, so here, so we can make this connected to what we're talking about here. So number five, baseless theology. So, so that which we call theology in the Islamic context is often different than what we call theology in Christianity. And so theology in the Islamic context will include aqidah, usul uh, al-deen, and kalam. The more commonly used term out of all of them, the more generically used term kalam is kalam, referring to almost all theology. And so the people who then, and so, so, or, so what is theology often addressing? It's sort of venturing into the unseen. or venturing into the nature of reality. And I'm saying those are both are very similar. Okay, so the unseen, the nature of reality. So what is aqidah that we commonly translate as creed? These are the things that are in the unseen that you have to take as concrete. 
So if I say, La ilaha illallah Muhammad Rasulullah, I also have to take angels as concrete. I also have to take uh, the Day of Judgment as concrete. So these are things in the unseen. It's trying to list out concrete elements in the unseen. Suladin would be looking for the philosophical foundations of the whole tradition. How does it all work? How does it all fit together? How do you reconcile free will predestination? How do you reconcile good and evil? All those types of questions. Okay. And then Kalam is our answers to their questions. So we would often call this dialectical theology. theology. Our answers to their questions. And what do we mean by this? This is basically questions that are coming from outside of our world into our world. So, you know, what is Islam's stance on evolution? You know, uh, eight, uh, 1200 years ago, okay, uh, what is the, you know, the origin of the Quran? Things like that. Okay. And so these also relate to the issue, parts two and three relate to the issue of reform because sometimes there's questions that become so widespread that they actually affect people's faith. So if I come along and say evolution happened, then there's a bunch of Muslims who are going to start turning away. Or if I say no, evolution did not happen, there's going to be a different group of Muslims that are going to turn away. And so the question is how do you answer those questions with integrity and such? But generally, ilm al-kalam would be uh, the generic term for all of this process of trying to repackage um, and understand everything related, starting from the nature of reality itself. And then how does even, like in a Sulabin, you would even ask, how does, you know, aqidah fit with law? How does tasawa fit with all this and such? What is the second last word under, oh, this is there. And so how do they all, you know, how do we reconcile them all with uh, each other? Okay. Okay, sure. Any other questions about anything at all? Other hands raised. Noor. Um, so I had a question in reference to um, Aya 82. So, um, we mentioned earlier how like the message is like, do not give up or like, do not despair. Um, and a few weeks ago, um, I asked the question of uh, when asking for forgiveness, there's obviously like that we can say it. And then the other really common one that a lot of people recite in Ramadan is and like I was specifically asking if uh, there would be any um, time where we could possibly say um, like Rabbi Ghafirli, and it would be, I, I guess, like a bit more relevant than Allahumma innaka afu and tuhibbul afwa. And I know while we were discussing it, you said that like you'd have to like think about it a little bit more, but um, I was kind of thinking that like, let's say a person has an experience that like isn't necessarily like aligning with Islamic values, but then down the line, it actually brings them closer to God and strengthens their faith. Could that be a time where somebody asks for forgiveness, but not necessarily for aqua? Is yeah, that, that works. You know, I've still been reflecting on, on, on your question because other people have asked almost exactly the same question, but uh, uh, I haven't come up with much more. You've already come up with more than I have. So much more. Cool. Uh, Ahant. What is your suggestion for coming to terms with parts of the deen that we can't, you know, uh, like either accept, uh, you know, because of Western stigmas or Western like way of thought? This is probably again jumping the gun, you know, because you know maybe this is answered in the in the IS to come. But I'm just wondering. So 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 think back to I twenty six and we said what is the bare minimum of what I have to have as an approach in terms of belief? I have to regard all of the text as truth. And so 
what it means beyond that, that's a separate issue. But these are all the word of Allah. Good. Now, I'll give you an example. Uh, in a different class, this is this is many, many years ago, uh, I had a student who was very, very knowledgeable. And we were talking, we were discussing the last two surahs, Surah Al-Falaq, Surah Al-Nas. And then I was giving the backstory, uh, which is that the Prophet, peace be upon him, was very, very ill. And 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 they couldn't figure out what's wrong. And then Jibreel alayhi salam comes to him. Uh, he might have actually come to him in a dream, but I forgot that part. I mean, and the Prophet, peace be upon him, was also you know, having memory issues you know, where he would think something had happened and it didn't. And, and so, so he's informed that some, someone took one of his hairs from a comb and then tied it into a knot and blew a curse on it. And then took that and dumped it in a well. And, and so, so then he had to send somebody to go in the well and find his hair. Okay. Now, just try to picture that scenario. The well is going to be completely dark, even in the daytime, and he has to. And this person has to find a black hair. Okay. And I don't know if they find it, okay. because you know that's what happens in these stories. But but the point is that uh, then you know they were able to uh, break the curse. And these last two surahs, it's part of the process of breaking the curse and from preventing further curses from happening. But a student in the class was so upset by this story because he felt that it completely undermines the entire story of Revelation. Okay. That if the prophet is vulnerable, then nothing can be, can be trusted. Okay. Even though this story is coming from our tradition. And literally, he got up and left the class. And then he and I had conversations about this later on. And my suggestion was to him was that if there are issues that you have not settled, the first thing to figure out is, is, is this a central issue that would make or break your deen? And central would be the things that are at the top of an Aqidah list. No God but God, Muhammad's messenger of God. Okay. If a person doesn't have an issue with that, then you can probably table the issue. Is related to angels, books, messengers, day of judgment, so forth and so on. If it's not related to that, and I'm saying not in the sense that it breaks those things, then you can table those, uh, you know, to see if there are issues that become relevant at some point. And so, so, so my short, a short version of that answer is basically, if you can determine that this is not a make or break issue, <coughs> then keep it on a shelf with the hope that if it needs to get resolved, it get it resolved later on. Let me know if that works. Thank you. Yeah. Because I think you and I have had this discussion. This is a discussion I've had with, with uh, many people who are on the way to conversion. You're not going to have a 100% satisfactory answer for, for every single issue because, uh, because a great many Muslims do not have 100% satisfactory answers for every issue. I'm saying people who are lifers, but there are a lot of issues that are not central to, to their practice of Islam. You know, I cannot give you, um, uh, uh, I can give you speculative explanations for the permission for, for concubines. You know, I also don't really explore too much because it's so thoroughly irrelevant to my life. You know, um, um, and then by extension, other questions like, uh, um, What's another common question that students raise? Uh, inheritance laws regarding, you know, people who are, you know, your slaves, um, or the question of illegitimacy in terms of, of a son or daughter who's born out of out of wedlock. Uh, when you go through Islamic legal texts, some of that stuff seems very, very uh, frightening from a modern urban context where everybody's individualized. And so, so the point is that there's all kinds of things that are, when you get into the deeper details of the tradition, uh, might, uh, might be so difficult to digest that they require far more than just explanation. It requires a certain understanding of how the world works. And so most of those issues, however, will probably be irrelevant to a person's life and practice. Good, Sadia. Um, sorry, no, I didn't have anything. Probably it's accidental. 
Oh, okay, okay, so I keep pressing the wrong button here too. Uh, Ahan, do you have another question or is that still the same, your hand raised? Okay, any other questions about anything else? And feel free to either raise your hand or just talk, preferably with the microphone on. Uh, could you repeat the point you made about Khilafa? Oh, so that I was basically saying, well, let's see if we can uh, find it. Let's do a, a quick search. So if we look at um, um, how do we do the translations? Translations. Let's look at Dr. Mohsin Khan. And let's throw in Piktal, let's throw in Madudi. This will make it fun. And then let's go look at Aya 30. 30. Okay. Sahih International, when your Lord said to the angels, I will make upon the earth a successive authority. Okay. That's Khalifa. Mosin Khan, okay, your Lord said to the angels, I am going to place generations after generations on earth. Piktal, I am going to place a viceroy on the earth. I don't know why we can't see Maududi. What if we get rid of one of these people? Does Maududi appear? Maududi. Okay, your Lord said to the angels, I'm going to place a vicegerent. Yeah. So the point I'm making is that this is a translation that if I go to, if I go on Hajj and one of the gifts that Saudi, that the Saudis give when you go on Hajj is first they'll give you like a bottle of Zamzam, you're welcome. And then as you're leaving, they'll give you a translation of the Quran or an Arabic only printing. And this is the one that, uh, that you'll be given, the Mohsen Khan translation. And is that translation sound linguistically? Yeah, it works. Yeah. In terms of the history of the tradition, uh, vicegerent or viceroy would be more accurate. And the point being that if I'm speaking of vicegerent or viceroy, then I'm opening up the possible discussion of, of moving towards establishment of Khilafah and such like that, um, which has its own history. But if I'm a king who wants to make sure that doesn't happen, then this is going to be the translation that I'm going to promote. So that's essentially the point that I'm making. Any other questions about anything at all? Any other questions, inshallah? Okay, we will stop right here. And then next we will get into the next category of causes and manifestations of rejection. All right, subhanakallahumma bihamdika nashadu illa ilaha illa anta nastaghfiruka wa natubu ilayk. Subhanakallahumma bihamdika nashadu illa ilaha illa anta nastaghfiruka wa natubu ilayk. Subhanakallahumma bihamdika nashadu illa ilaha illa anta nastaghfiruka wa natubu ilayk. May Allah tell you all, inshallah. Wa akhir da'wana anilhamdulillahi rabbil alameen. Wassalamu alaikum